welcome to the ACR Bulletin Podcast, the show where we cover the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today I'm joined by Jennifer Kemp, MD, FACR. Dr. Kemp is a body imaging specialist at Diversified Radiology in Denver, Colorado, where she also serves as quality chair. She's the chair of RSNA Public Information Committee and is a member, also a member of the ACR Commission on Patient Family-Centered Care. And in addition to these roles, Dr. Kemp is also Chief Patient Experience Officer at Scanslated, a physician-led healthcare technology company that develops software to transform medical reports into patient-friendly interactive format. Uh, Dr. Kemp, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. Well, in honor of uh, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, uh, which occurs every March, uh, today we'll be discussing the importance of screening for colorectal cancer. Uh, But before we get into how colorectal cancer screening works, um, I understand you have a personal connection actually to this diagnosis. And I was wondering if you'd be able to tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. So my husband was diagnosed with stage three rectal cancer when he was 37. It was not picked up in a screening exam because he didn't meet the age criteria. He had rectal bleeding, so he ended up having a diagnostic colonoscopy to detect that. And when he was diagnosed, um, I had already been a full-time private practice radiologist for seven years as a body imager. So I knew exactly what kind of treatment to expect and what the path forward um, would look like. But what shocked me that I was completely dumbfounded by was how hard it all was, how hard chemotherapy is, how hard radiation is, how hard every surgery was. I was not prepared for that at all. Um, And it, yeah, it just wasn't a fun experience. (laughs) And it kind of changed my outlook on... um, how I like to practice medicine or practice radiology. Absolutely. And we uh, just just for people who are interested in that story, uh, you you illuminate that in a case study that we worked with you a few years ago on. And I'll make sure to link to that case study in the show notes. Um, that that was a really, really brave, I thought of you to come forward and, and talk about that. And and I think that's something that's missing a lot of times when we when we learn about this issue is that personal story. So thank you so much again for uh, kind of grounding us with that. Um, so, like as you alluded to, that that experience seems to have led to you to adopt this this approach you you were alluding to, uh, where you try to always make yourself available for discussions, optimize patient care, and uh, again, you know, we'll we'll link to that in the sh- in the show notes. But um, can you please tell us a little bit about this approach and and how it contrasts with maybe how you used to practice medicine, or maybe even how others uh, that you've observed practice practice radiology? Absolutely. So. One of the things that I realized during this cancer journey with my husband was um, nothing about it was patient friendly. It was all bumpy and, and not pleasant, but radiology is a huge part of the cancer journey. A lot of our time was spent in the department of radiology. So I really thought to myself, what can we do as radiologists to make this better for all patients? And and I know we can't make it perfect, we can't make it fun, we can't make it easy, but we can make it better. And I believe that every radiologist has some power to affect the patient's care when they're in our department and and when they're our patient. So my, my mission has been to kind of 
talked to radiologists, other radiologists about my experience, about how to do this, about the differences that we can make as radiologists, hoping um, to change the the interest level or or the practices of other radiologists as well. And for example, some of the things that I do, um, my entire radiology group has put our phone number on the bottom of reports for years now, and we really welcome patients' phone calls. And that is kind of a culture shift in the, in the world of radiology, but I think it's being adopted more and more, at least in Denver for sure. And I, I see it around the country. Um, patients want to talk to radiologists. They do. We have value to bring. And talking to patients also brings value to radiologists. It makes us feel more satisfied. It sometimes helps us with our diagnoses. And then another example I would say is as a body imager, I read a lot of cancer follow-up CTs. And historically, I used to kind of think, oh, I'm going to deal with all the inpatient and ER cases first because those are emergent and the cancer cases can wait. And after seeing my husband time and time again, waiting for his follow-up results of a CAT scan or a PET-CT, cancer is an emergency to the patient on the other side of that scan. So um, I try to give cancer follow-ups really an equal priority to other um, important examinations that I'm reading. That's so interesting you say that. Yeah, we've talked to patient advocates on, on the show as well. And that's something they, uh, in fact, I just had a, a patient on uh, Amanda Crowley-Leong, and she was just talking about that scan, scanxiety, the, mm-hmm. the, the fear. I mean, it's, it is a real fear and it's almost like, and, I, and I've read accounts where people just don't feel like they can even go on with their lives until they know, because I mean, think about it. And I, you don't have to think about it. You experienced it, but it's just like, you know, you could proceed through life to through to, down two totally different paths, depending on that diagnosis, you know, so, or lack for sure, own. for sure. And I wasn't yeah. aware of that. I was not, I had no idea that that's what people or my patients were thinking, waiting for scans. I didn't. And then I witnessed it in my husband, this kind of how he was completely paralyzed until oh. um, he would get the results. And usually he would get the results from me rather than having oh. to wait potentially days or, or weeks to hear from a doctor, like traditionally. Right. That's a great point. Like, like, I mean, you know, at least he had you as the intermediary. Think about most people. They don't, yeah. it's a total stranger. And sometimes the, the diagnosis is coming first, like you said, from a radiologist uh, who is a complete unknown, you know, at least they, at least you've put your phone number. So you, people are like, well, maybe this is a real person. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. yeah, that's so inspiring that you, you do that. So. Thank you. Well, yeah, no, if we can get a little more into the nitty gritty, you know, of this, this issue, colon cancer screening, uh, because again, it's probably on the forefront of a lot of people's mind, especially in March going into April, especially. So in your judgment, um, who should pursue colon cancer screening? So really, it's it's not my judgment, I wouldn't say I would say um, people should follow the the guidelines that are very well established and published. So I wouldn't say it's my judgment per se, but I very much agree with the standardized guidelines. And the guidelines say that people should start screening at age 45. Mm -hmm. And that is a change. Just in the last year, they have dropped the screening age to start 
um, at 45 from 50. And the reason for that is because the incidence and mortality of colorectal cancer in patients younger than 49 is increasing. Mm. Although because of colorectal cancer screening, the mortality and incidence of colon cancer in patients over 50 is decreasing. That's great news. It means that screening is working for patients under 50, but because of, uh, there are a lot of theories of why it is, but, um, but younger patients are getting this disease more and more often, including my husband, obviously, and the incidence of rectal cancer is increasing twice as fast as that of colon cancer for younger patients. Um, And I will also throw in that colorectal cancer is the number two cause of cancer death in both men and women. And currently about one third of patients who are in the screening age in the United States, one third of patients are not getting screened at all. Mm. And that, that number has that, I actually don't know this and I'm not sure if you do the, has that number held of the, the percentage who just, consistently aren't getting screened or is that, a, is there? Is I that don't a, know. I don't know. I mean, I would like to think that it's in continuing to improve, but I don't know. Right. Right. Well, you know, and, and you know, it's interesting because there we're going to, you know, tie in uh, a, uh, a patient friendly animation, which I know you're familiar with about on this topic, which we've done in the past. Um, so we have an ever increasing library of these patient friendly animated videos. And so, um, and, and in that video, it walks the, the viewer, even though it's a very short video, very easy to consume, um, it does uh, walk a person through, you know, maybe some 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 general traits that some that folks might want to be looking out for. So, is, can you reinforce that message here uh, in our conversation? Like, what are the trait, the, maybe the big traits that, that you think of in your mind uh, for a person uh, to be at risk for developing colon cancer? Sure, sure. So, really, every everyone is at some risk, and and right. everyone should get screened, um, regardless of your risk level. Once you're 45 through 75, but there are people with increased risk who may want to start screening earlier or more frequently. And those with increased risk, there are a couple of genetic um, predispositions to colorectal cancer, which include Lynch syndrome and familial adenomatous um, polyposis. There are also inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that increase the risk. But also there are factors that are under our control, which we're hearing so much about with so many other cancers right now. You can decrease your own likelihood of getting cancer or, or colorectal cancer specifically, um, by changing lifestyle habits to include smoking, diet, exercise, alcohol consumption, obesity, all the things that we keep harping on ourselves about um, and are making, unfortunately, not as much progress as we would like. Right. Well, and it's interesting how there's so much overlap, and this is not a conversation about COVID. That This is way beyond that, but it's interesting because so many of the risk factors, it sounds like with so many things like COVID as well, like what that maybe that's part of why we're hearing so much about that. It's interesting that they, that there's overlap with other ailments such as this. So hopefully if, if there's a silver lining to be had with all this, people will be living healthier lifestyles. So I hope so. And and with the the, con, the congruent um, push towards population health, I know a lot of that is about uh, affecting upstream social determinants of health and things. So it seems to all be kind of coming together in a way. So sure does. Uh, but, 
Yeah, but I don't want to get too far afield. That's a really big topic for another time, population health. But well, some people uh, who are listening right now may qualify for getting screened and but not might not know where to start. Um, I know for me, you know, I just recently had a um, primary care doctor appointment and that was one thing that because I'm past 45 now that he was very upfront about is you need to get that screening. But no, but I mean, you know, beyond that, you know, where do maybe people don't have a, a primary care doctor. There's so many, so much of that going on as well. So how, how do you recommend, um, you know, they get started? Where are the endpoints for this in your, in your judgment and maybe a typical care pathway? Sure, sure. So yes, most people, it would be by talking to their primary care doctor and most primary care doctors should bring up this topic with their patients who are of screening age. I, I, since the guidelines recently changed only in the last year to age 45, I wouldn't presume that all doctors even know of this change. So it's important to educate the population too about this age change so that patients can talk to their, bring it up to their doctor if, if the doctor doesn't bring it up to them. And just as you mentioned, of course, a lot of people don't have a primary care doctor, um, in which case, even um, an urgent care or an ER doctor, any of those physicians can order a screening test and can have a conversation about what the best screening option is for any given patient. Interesting. Yeah. And on the education piece, I guess, um, you know, it's, you know, if, if somebody like, like, you know, you were just were talking about maybe just hasn't been to the doctor in a long time. I mean, there's a lot of that going on too, because of COVID, especially. And you know, if, if I mean, I count myself in the group of people who are still a little bit paranoid about, about COVID, uh, but maybe they've been putting off that trip that they know they need to take. So, um, you know, just, just so they can be, you know, aware of what's going on when they do decide to go in and, and maybe have that appointment, what are the various options for, for colon cancer screening? I know there's a few different varieties and, and maybe who, who would each kind of apply to in your, in your mind? Sure, sure. So there are a lot of options for screening, and I think that's good. Um, any type of screening is good screening. It's better than nothing right. by far. Um but there are a lot of options and it can feel confusing. It can feel a little bit overwhelming. So I think it's important for patients to be educated as much as they possibly can be about what the different options are. So most people have heard of colonoscopy. That's kind of the gold standard, at least in the U.S., of how patients are screened. Colonoscopy is an excellent exam that is known to significantly decrease mortality and incidence of colon cancer. And the fascinating thing I think about colon cancer screening is that not only is it screening for cancer, but it prevents cancer. Of Unlike other screening tests like mammograms or lung cancer screening, which don't really prevent cancer, but colon cancer screening prevents cancer by removing the precursors um, to malignancy, which are polyps. Um, but at any rate, so colonoscopy is the gold standard, but colonoscopy is expensive. It requires sedation. It requires a day off work. Sedation and the procedure in and of itself have risks. It requires the patient to have a driver to and from the screening center. So there are a lot of potential barriers to our gold standard. Other options include a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is similar to a colonoscopy, but it's cheaper 
typically it's not done with sedation, although I would think that might not be the most pleasant experience. I, I haven't experienced it myself, um, but that could be a deterrent in and of itself. And a flex, a flexible sigmoidoscopy or flex sig, which a lot of people call it, screens only about a third of the colon rather than the entire colon. So some people would say that's akin to getting like a single mammogram instead of both, both breast image, you know, you're not, but but again, it's, um, it's better than nothing. And it definitely saves lives and increase and decreases the incidence of colon cancer. So as most radiologists know, radiology does have CT colonography, also called virtual colonoscopy, that is an option for patients. And this is another visual way to look at the colon and the sensitivity and specificity for for detecting cancer and polyps one centimeter and greater is similar to that of our gold standard colonoscopy. So it's very, a very good test. It does not require sedation. It's cheaper than dedicated colonoscopy. You don't have to take a day off work. You could potentially do it on the weekends or in the evening. So there are a lot of potential advantages to CT colonography. In addition, there are stool-based tests, which are cheaper um, and certainly more accessible a lot of these tests you can just do at home and and mail in the sample. One is called fecal occult blood test, FOBT, which tests for hemoglobin. One is called a FIT test, which also tests for hemoglobin, but it's specifically human hemoglobin rather than like uh, meat that you might be eating. And the third is a DNA stool test. I think it's called Cologuard. So all of those... Um, do detect cancers and sometimes polyps, although the detection rate for polyps is not nearly as good as the visual colon inspections. So they're less likely to prevent cancer per se. But of course, if that's what the patient's agreeable to, um, then then great. Um, That's a good option as well. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's a good start too, because I think maybe it Part of, I wonder if a lot of this is also just a fear of the whole process. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, some people uh, can't do it. They just don't have the, the the wherewithal to do it. But I wonder if there's a chunk of people who just, you know, you almost, it's almost just like they almost have to get kind of comfortable with it or something. But I don't know. I don't want to speculate, but I, you know. No, um, it's very true. And there's a lot of studies that show that if you ask patients, you know, what, you know, would you rather have a colonoscopy or a CT scan and more patients would choose a CT scan mm. um, if you're just giving them, you know, the option of the procedure itself. But right. then if you just look at all the risks and benefits, then it's really patient dependent. Interesting. Yeah. Well, building on that, you know, I uh, spoke with uh, another ACR member. I know you're familiar with Dr. Cecilia Brillington. Actually, this time last year, uh, we're trying to do this consistently you know, every every March you know, every February, March about uh, colorectal cancer screening. And we delved into, you know, how certain types of screening present barriers, which you've, you've already kind of enlightened a little bit, enlightened us a little bit about. So, you know, some screener, like you said, are a little bit more uh, invasive um, and involve taking time off of work, like you said. And, and interestingly, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how this population health is kind of hovering in the background because so, so such a central principle of that approach to, med- to practicing medicine is accessibility. 
And so like, if, you know, if somebody can't take off, off a day of work because, because of the job they have, and, and obviously that's not a, 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 you know, an issue that doctors necessarily need to involve themselves in like, you know, a person's type of job where they can't get the time off, but um, you know, that does present barriers, you know, clinical barriers ultimately. So, so interesting how everything kind of plays into each other, even beyond the walls of a hospital. So, um, but I, I was wondering, you know, leaving aside, um, you know, relatively low reimbursement rates or sometimes lack thereof with a lot of these, uh, unfortunately these screening, um, you know, what, you know, I guess if you were talking to somebody who, uh, did, did have some sort of barriers. Um, is there, maybe, maybe let's go a little bit off script just for a minute and see where it goes, but are there, um, even ways you might talk to your fellow physicians and say, you know, are there ways we can increase accessibility? Because, you know, it's not like we can ask a person to get another job, uh, just so that, <laughs> or, or to like suddenly somehow have some kind of like public transportation that doesn't exist to even get here in the first place. Um, and, and what I'm thinking about is uh, we just had, uh, you know, ACR employees were, were spearheading this in uh, a day of radio um, for lung cancer screening awareness. Uh -huh. um, you know, can you open up, uh, you know, screening to even on the weekends, maybe just 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 pledge to do one weekend day and, and lung cancer awareness month is in November. So this happened a little while ago. But um, so, so that was yes, it's symbolic, you know, it's but it's a step. It's saying okay, we, this is a proof of concept, we can do this. So I'm just wondering, are there outside of the box ways of thinking about this that, that you've also maybe heard of? Yes, yes. And I love that idea of for lung cancer screening saying, let's just say we're going to do lung cancer screening on a Saturday. Um, yeah. So the patients right. are more available and it has and it's more accessible for our patients. And I think this topic is certainly a hot topic in the world of radiology and medicine right now is health equity. Like why why are we seeing um, different healthcare disparities among certain populations. And for example, um, African-American population has a 20% increased incidence of colorectal cancer and a 35% increased mortality from colorectal cancer. So that is one of our underserved communities. And we need to look at why, why is that? Why do they have different outcomes? And is it potentially related to access in, in some cases? So if it is a question of access, we have a physician shortage, all physicians worldwide right now do. Are there enough gastroenterologists in underserved communities to perform colonoscopies? There are a lot of CT scanners all, all over this country. Um, so CT scanners, that is a way that we can provide improved access. In addition, CT scanners, um, we can CT people after 5 p.m. and on the weekends. And it doesn't have to necessarily be during an 8 to 5 um, job. So that is certainly another way that we can decrease barriers. We can, there have also been studies about radiology um, departments actually providing rides for patients, um, providing transportation to, to help them get to their screening appointments. So there's a lot of work being done. Exactly. And, and I, you know, just within the last year or two, the uh, Institute for uh, Healthcare Improvement has, has increased their triple aim to a quadruple aim you know, because they because they realize there's so much physician burnout as well. So it seems to me like you have to 
you know, those are great ideas, uh, but you also have to kind of balance it against asking people to do uh, a lot of stuff. They're already not really being reimbursed for all that well, and then you're asking them to do more. So, you know, uh, um, obviously, altruistically, it's the right thing to do. It's it's just a, a matter of, you know, kind of balancing all the elements. So I, I just want to make sure listeners realize that we, you know, uh, that that's something that, you know, we're, I know is top of mind for folks as well. So, um, that's true. Now, this is this speaks to what, you know, my actual ignorance on this particular issue. Do you are you familiar with, uh, you know, ACR's exact recommendations? I know you said 45. We've dropped it to 45. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just don't know if there's any other particulars that, that would make sense for the audience to be aware of. So the ACR recommends exactly what um, the USPSTF guidelines recommend. And, and the ACR, the American College of Radiology, supports every type of screening because that's the, the right thing to do. But part of the ACR's job, um, being a radiologic society, is also to promote and educate people regarding the the radi radiographic option that we have with CT colonography. But the ACR, of course, supports any type of cancer screening and would recommend following the guidelines and talking to your doctor. Great, that's great, that's great advice. Well, um, you know, we're gonna wrap, wrap it up here with a couple of final questions. And I was just wondering, you know, uh, sort of in conclusion, if you could talk about the role that radiologists can play uh, in, in working, you, you've, you've kind of, you know, touched on it, and I just wonder if we can kind of end on on, on these these sorts of notes. Increase adoption of colorectal cancer screening, uh, and what ACR is doing to to promote screening adoption. Sure, sure. So regarding what radiologists can do, radiologists can get trained to read CT colonography. Um, so that that's on us. We also need to reach out to our communities and let them know that we're here. We're here with this Great option. Point. We need to educate our referring physicians and gastroenterologists that we can do this, that it's an option. We need to create screening programs with our gastroenterology partners to say, if they have, sometimes they'll have a failed colonoscopy where they can't get all the way through the colon and they might want to send the patient right over for a CT scan, which is a great option because the patient doesn't have to go through another bowel prep. So we can make these agreements between each other. We could also say to our gastroenterology um, colleagues, if we do a CT colonography and we see a polyp or we see a mass, can we send the patient right over to you? So it's... Um, yeah. It's, they're mutually beneficial and we need to work together um, to educate other doctors that we're available to do this with them. And then in regards to the ACR question, what's the ACR doing to educate people um, about getting screened? The ACR, I think most people are aware of radiologyinfo.org. So that's a joint website um, housed and overseen by both the ACR and RSNA. And the radiologyinfo.org gets 1.8 million visits a, a month. And the majority of those visits are patients viewing it in Spanish, which I find um, 
just utterly fascinating. And it's patients from around the country. So this is a way that patients are looking for content. They're coming to us to educate them. And on radiologyinfo.org, there's information about colorectal cancer screening, CT colonography, uh, colorectal cancer in general. So in addition, um, you mentioned the patient-friendly animations. So the ACR um, PFCC Commission is creating patient-friendly animations to help educate patients about commonly asked imaging questions and help patients with um, shared decision-making with their ordering providers. So these little animations are only about one minute long. They can be posted on places where patients go for content, i.e. YouTube, Twitter, and radiologyinfo.org. So these animations are being, we're partnering with radiologyinfo.org, posting these animations in a place where we know patients are visiting these sites. And currently there are 18 of these patient-friendly animations available, one of which is specific to colorectal cancer screening, and it is, I think it's already posted on YouTube and will be posted on the radiologyinfo.org site very soon in conjunction with the Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. That's great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll um, definitely link to those animations on the show notes for this, this, um, uh, this episode. And as we, you know, behind the scenes, we've been talking, you brought up this great point, uh, uh, you know, that, that, it's, you know, so many Spanish speakers are visiting. Um, why, why don't we kind of make more of a concerted effort to translate a lot of this stuff. So that was a great suggestion and we're taking under advisement and we're really looking into doing that. And that, you know, that just, again, you, you keep bringing up these kind of um, central pillars of population health. And I, and I just, I just talk about, it cause that's, I also, I, I staff the uh, population health management committee here at ACR, but um, you know, accessibility extends to language too, right? Uh, it's not just about the hours you might be able to go, but it's like, will you even understand it if you're there and and making it kind of meeting patients where they are in so many different ways, even up, you know, as far as language too, uh, is very important. So that's, thank Absolutely. you for that. Very important. Super exciting. It is, it is. And now just to end, uh, you know, last question, what do you think the future is of, of colorectal cancer screening? So there's a lot on the horizon, including um, there's there are all types of blood tests being developed, screening for all sorts of cancers, including colorectal cancer. There are additional DNA stool biomarkers, and there's research being done about urine testing for colon cancer screening. So all of those are amazing. It would be fabulous if we get to that point where we don't have to have something that's expensive or requires anesthesia and a day off work but we're not there yet. And we're in a situation where the incidence of mortality is increasing for younger people. So we need to use the screening methods that we currently have, which are excellent. Absolutely. Well, what a, what a positive note to end on. Thank you so much uh, for this, such a fascinating conversation and timely as well. Um, if people would like to learn more about the, these very important topics, uh, can they find you somewhere online? I'm active on Twitter, Jennifer okay. Kemp MD at Jennifer Kemp MD. So that would be um, an easy way to reach me. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Oh, great, great. Well, I encourage everyone to go and talk to talk to Dr. Kemp, and let's spread the word out there. 
Uh, well, for our listeners, if you have any ideas for future show topics, please let us know on Twitter at the handle at RadiologyACR. And please include uh, hashtag ACR Bulletin Podcast in your tweet so that we can see it right away. Um, I also invite our audience to check out all of our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And be sure to just uh, please be sure to subscribe to ACR's YouTube channel to stay up to date on our latest episodes. And finally, please do hit that like button on this video if you found it valuable. Well, thank you again, Dr. Kemp, so much. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. Get screened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners. This has been ACR Bullet Podcast. See you next time.